Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We have a loaded show today. We're going to chat with Kyrie Thompson from WEI in just a little bit, get into the Patriots, some of the issues with Matt Patricia and this offense. I will get to the Bruins and I'm going to get to the Red Sox because there is some news there. But I want to start with the Celtics since they just win this game tonight over the Brooklyn Nets, 103 to 92, and sort of recap this game and the Heat game because a couple of big takeaways from this one. So first of all, We always give Tatum all the credit in the world, and deservingly so, but Jalen Brown is having an outstanding year, and tonight, it was Jalen Brown that was the catalyst for this team. So if you look at what Jalen did in this game, 20 points in the first quarter, 5 of 5 from three-point territory, and this is what Jalen has done over the past couple of years. Last year, he was top 10 in the NBA in first quarter scoring, and tonight, or I should say this year, he's 16th in the NBA in first quarter scoring at 7.2 a game, and tonight, he had 20, and it was important because... Tatum didn't really have it early in this game, and I'll get to him in greater detail in a little bit here, but Jalen Brown just setting the tone for this team because you knew the Nets wanted the Celtics, right? Because of how embarrassing that was last year in the postseason. This game was way more important to the Nets than the Celtics. Now, the Celtics, yeah, they're trying to come back and respond after a difficult loss on Friday night, but it's Jalen Brown that picked up the slack for Tatum not really having it early in this game. And that's a trend with this team where you look at it And you say, this is a sign of a great team. When you lose, you come out and you respond, especially when you don't have your best game. The Celtics were not good offensively in this game, but Jalen Brown really was. And 
Just a couple of things that stuck out to me. How about the move where he just flies by Durant? Once he gets an advantage on a defender, he can just hit the acceleration button and he is just right at the basket. So Jalen right now, where Tatum was really not good at all in that game Friday night, he didn't play well and it took him a little bit to get going in this game and he had some issues. But if you look at Jalen, he's really starting to come on here. Last six games now counting tonight, 57 of 98, or I should say 67 of 118 from the floor. That's 56.8%. Ridiculous numbers. Absolutely ridiculous. Over that six-game span, he is averaging 31.5 points per game. This is the second best player on the team. This is where the Celtics are in a different category than everybody else because when their best player isn't playing well, they have a guy that for a couple of nights in a row can play like a number one option in the NBA. Not to say that Jalen could ever carry his own team. I can't see that happening based on not the best creator in the world or anything along those lines. But when you have a guy like this that is, first of all, a nuclear athlete, just a ridiculous athlete in the top 1% of NBA athletes or the best athletes in the world, to see him just be able to take over games like this. We saw it at times during the postseason. It's just such a luxury when Tatum, like all these other superstars, Luka has got to do it every single night. Durant has to do it every single night. And for Tatum to have a guy as good as Jalen Brown, it's just this is why this team is so much different. Like we get into all the three-point shooting and how great the offense has been. But this is what separates the Celtics from everybody else, that they have the best, without question, number two option in the NBA. And tonight he was tremendous. You think about the second quarter, the chase down block. Jalen had four blocks in this game. He was ridiculous. He had a block on Durant too. And I really feel like Jalen was not a great defender last year. Not to say that he's not capable of being that, but he wasn't. He used to always get lost off the ball and stuff along those lines. Tonight, I really felt like this is his best defensive game of the season. I mentioned the blocks, but you think about it too, just really good plays off the ball. And that's where to me, like Jalen's never been a bad defender on ball. He's always been a really good defender, but sometimes he gets lost when he's away from the ball. And tonight I thought he did a really good job as a help defender. I mean, one play that sticks out is Grant's ISOed on Durant. Jalen comes over and gets a block on Durant. They go the other way and he dunks it, right? So it's just those type of heady plays where we usually see that from Tatum, who's an outstanding off the ball defender. But tonight Jalen was just ridiculous. All right, so the offense not good tonight, but the defense was. And that's where we look through the numbers and the Celtics are middle of the road. The defense has not been great. I always come back to the fact, well, eventually you're going to get Robert Williams back and this defense is going to be elite again. Like, I'm not super worried about the defense, but on a night where your offense didn't have it, it was nice to see the Celtics defense just dominate this game. So you think about it, the Nets tonight in the restricted area were 12 of 24. That's just 50%, obviously. And on the season, nobody's allowing their opponent to shoot less than 61.6% of the restricted area. The Celtics were at 50 tonight. So they defended the basket. You just look at their overall field goal percentage tonight. The Nets on the season actually have the best opponent's field goal percentage at 44.5. Tonight, the Celtics held the Nets to 40.5% shooting. So that was the key tonight is just the Celtics defense. It was so good last year. And I'm not complaining about the team. They're the best team in the NBA and all that. But we saw that defense. We saw... What made this team great last year where they were flying around? You could tell in the first quarter they were really dialed in. One play that stuck out to me, Kyrie gets a switch on Horford, and he's trying to break him down off the dribble. First of all, Horford stones him. He couldn't go by him. But Tatum has the presence of mind to help at the last, last second. He gets a late contest on Kyrie, and Kyrie misses that shot. That's when you know this team is dialed in. When they're making plays like that off the ball, we saw it a lot from Jalen, but we also saw it from Tatum. And then how about... Derek White, that block that he had on Kyrie, where he just all of a sudden gets back in the play. Unbelievable block. Jalen, as we mentioned, some of the transition 
blocks that he made tonight. He's just comes out of nowhere. There was another one too tonight where they double Kevin Durant. Jason Tatum recognizes the doubles on the other side of the floor, and he knows exactly where Durant's outlet is. It's in the other corner. Sprints to the corner, gets the ball, goes the other way. The Celtics score in transition. So just heady plays by the Celtics defensively. And then the one thing that sticks out to you watching the Celtics compared to the Nets, they are just so much more athletic than Brooklyn. Tonight, the Celtics end up blocking nine shots, as we alluded to. Jalen Brown has four of those blocks. But on the season, they're slightly above average, five blocks a game, 13th in the NBA. And Brooklyn leads the league at 7.2. The Celtics are at nine tonight. So just that overwhelming physicality the Celtics have, the Nets don't. It is very pleasing to watch that against this Brooklyn team because I can't stand this Brooklyn team. Speaking of not standing this Brooklyn team, how about Kyrie Irving gets the technical tonight? He wants the flop. He was bitching the entire game. Oh, he's so annoying. But in this game tonight, he was horrible again. And this is now a trend with Kyrie Irving. The Celtics just have figured Kyrie Irving out. Kyrie Irving cannot do anything against the Celtics. So remember, he had 39 points in game one of that playoff series. Ever since that point, Kyrie Irving is 17 for 64 in his last four games against the Celtics. That's 26.5%. Horrible and 16 points per game. So this is now a trend that has been going on for some time. Kyrie Irving playing poorly against the Celtics. Ever since he had that outstanding game, he can't do anything. And of course, it's really difficult for us to watch this, the pain that Kyrie Irving must be going through. So it is satisfying in that sort of area of the game where the game within the game where Kyrie Irving just can't figure out the Celtics. It's awesome. All right. I did want to say Brogdon really made a difference in this game. 78-76, he drives Puts pressure on the defense, finds Al for a wide open three. Next possession, Jalen rips the ball away from Durant. Dunk on the other end. It's 83-76 then. And then Brogdon just really took over the game with his drive game. Six of the Celtics' first 14 assists in this game came via Malcolm Brogdon. So he was outstanding. Now, this is where I'm kind of frustrated with the game tonight. I love the fact that they won the game with their defense, and we've been questioning how good is this defense so far this year. But the offense, man, it kind of looked like last year at times where the Celtics got stuck in the mud, tried to play a little bit too much isolation basketball. And that's why third quarter, you had 13 points. And you look at it on the season, the Celtics in terms of their passing, it wasn't the same. The Celtics had just 17 assists tonight, and Brogdon ends up with seven of them. On the season, their seventh in assists per game at 27.4. No team in the NBA is under 21 assists per game. And the Celtics center are at 17. So that is something to monitor going forward. Is they just, it felt like at times the ball gets stuck. And the one thing that I saw that was the difference from last year to this year is when that happened, Brogdon just started driving the ball and finding guys for wide open three. So that's a major difference from last year. You didn't have that club in the bag, and Brogdon obviously was tremendous doing that because really he took over the game with his passing. And then I wanted to look at, so the Celtics in this game, they're 15 of 38 on threes. That's 39.5%. This is why the Celtics shoot threes, okay? They hit 16.9 per game, which is the most in the NBA. But on a night where you're not shooting the basketball well from two-point territory, I'll get to that in a second, the three is the reason you win this game. The Celtics go 15 of 38 39.5%. And this is why the Celtics shoot threes. I've been trying to tell you this. This is why I don't get concerned about the Celtics taking so many threes. Because if you look at it, on the season, they're hitting 16.9 threes per game, which is the most in the NBA. That's really, really good numbers, right? In terms of the ability to just knock down threes left and right. And if you look at it tonight, the Celtics, of course, they hit those 15 threes. And if you look at the difference in terms of the three-point shooting in this game, the Celtics outscore the Brooklyn Nets by 18 points behind the line. On the season, 
The Celtics are outscoring their opponents by 16.2 points per game from three-point territory. So on a night where your offense wasn't great, the reason you win this game is because they are taking a lot of threes. So this whole idea like, oh, the Celtics, two three-point reliant. No, if they weren't three-point reliant tonight, they would have lost the game. The difference in this game tonight is them outscoring the Brooklyn Nets at the three-point line. That's how they win it from an offensive perspective. And you look at it tonight, the Celtics from two-point territory, they were horrible. They were 20 of 43, 46.5%. The worst team in the NBA is Charlotte at 508 The Celtics are 58.3% of the season, so that's a big issue in this game tonight where the Celtics could not score in terms of their two-point game, but their three-pointers saved them, and that's why keep shooting threes. Don't listen to these people about you're being too three-point reliant. Keep shooting threes. The other big one tonight is they were just 21.4% from floater range, so that was kind of, it felt like they were getting caught in the middle at times, not getting all the way to the basket, settling for those, and obviously those are not good shots for the Celtics tonight. With Tatum, I thought the end of the second quarter, he really got going where he had kind of like that dirt jumper over Kevin Durant where he was on one leg, his ridiculous shot by Tatum. And then after that, he gets a big steal on the double that I alluded to. He hits a pull up three later on. He goes by Harris. He finishes with his left at the cup. And I did feel like after that moment in the second quarter, he kind of came out of his funk that he had been in since the Miami Heat game. I mean, it's a game and a half, but the end of the second quarter is really where Tatum put his mark on the game. And Even saying that, like, I didn't think Tatum played tremendously well tonight, and he had 29 points, so he's still at a ridiculous game. The one thing is, the nine turnovers tonight, that's something that he's going to clean it up. And that was, like, drives that were not strong. We saw that a lot last year. So it's just not a great couple of games for Tatum, and saying that all, he ended up with 29 points tonight, which is pretty damn ridiculous. All right, I did want to mention the Heat game on Friday, just from this perspective. So I was talking about a couple of weeks ago about the teams in the East and how it'd be important for the Celtics to get the one just because Milwaukee is the team that, of course, you want home court against. That's the second best team in the NBA. You and Milwaukee are going to be battling for home court all season. And that's the team that you could say, okay, that team could legitimately beat the Celtics in a series. But the more and more I think about it, the team that I want to avoid that's lower than the Celtics in terms of the standings, not the Milwaukee of the world, is the Miami Heat. So Tatum in that game Friday 14 points, five turners, five for 18, by far his worst game of the season. And if you sort of look at Tatum since the playoffs last year against Miami, of course, the two games this year and the seven last year, he's at 4.3 turnovers per game and five assists per game. So on the season, his assist to turnover ratio is 1.83. If you look at his last nine games against the Heat, that assist to turnover ratio is 0.86. So it's really bad. And the Heat just make things really difficult on Tatum because he has to make so many decisions in terms of trying to read that defense because they're in zone, they're not in zone, they're doing all this crazy shit that Spolstra likes to do. It's just a very difficult matchup for the Celtics. And even if you look at the shot quality in that game, their expected field goal percentage was 51%, which is not great, so you were not getting good shots. And then you look at Tatum in that game, was not finishing. Four of seven in the restricted area. On the season, he's at 74.1%. That's one of his strengths. It's A lot of times because you don't know where the contest is coming from with that style of defense they play. So, and in general, the Celtics, they have a heat problem in terms of they turn the ball over way too much against the heat. 18 times in that game, five, as we mentioned from Tatum, and that's 17.8% of your possessions you're turning the basketball over. The C's are at 13.7% in terms of their turnover percentage this season. That's the eighth best. Houston is last in the NBA at 17.7. The Celtics the other night, at 17.8% in terms of how often they're turning it over. 
And if you go back to that Heat series last year, they were at 16.1%. That's an issue. They do this to the Celtics. They aggravate the Celtics. And the other problem with the Heat is Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler in that game, 25 points. He grabs 15 boards, 12 of 21 from the floor. He took 11 shots in the restricted area in that game. And you just think about that series going back to last year. 47 points at the Garden in Game 6, took 11 free throws. Game 7, 35 points, he took 11 free throws. Game 1, he had 41 points, he took 18 free throws. I just don't want to deal with this guy in the postseason. He's got that sort of like, fuck you in him. Like, I don't want any part of him in the postseason. And he's so competitive. And there's no reason last year that series should have went seven games. I mean, we can look at the turnovers, but you have to give the Heat some credit. Yeah, they're sloppy, the Celtics, last year in that series. But the Heat do stuff that just gets under your skin. Like, I respected Jimmy Butler even more after that series last year. I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. It's just he's scary. He's, his game is not pretty, right? He's And he barrels into the basket. It's just I don't want any part of that guy whatsoever. And also the Spolstra factor, right? They junk it up. We mentioned that they took you to seven last year. So I was just talking about, you know, this whole idea of who you want to avoid. To me, it's this team. I want no part of the Heat. Ultimately, I think the Seas would win that series like they did last year. But Miami would take something out of you, right? They'll make you feel it. You think about last year in the finals, the Celtics were beat up. They were tired. I know they had the long series against the Bucs as well, but that Heat series really did a number on them. And Spolstra outcoached Ime in that series. And now you got another guy that's in his first year as head coach, of course, in Joe Missoula. So you would have a clear coaching edge to the Heat in that series. That's something I just certainly would look at this and say, hey, if you want to like mess around with the seating, just don't play Miami. And one other thing is this. So I just cannot stand the Heat. After that series last year, they got a lot of players I don't like. I just, I respect Jimmy Butler, but he annoys me. The Lowry factor just gets to me. I don't want to live through another playoff series against Kyle Lowry. I cannot stand that guy. Like if Adam Silver said, hey, Ryan, I need your help. I don't think he would, but let's just say hypothetically he asked me. Maybe he will. Who knows? He says, hey, I need your help. What could you do to help our product? I would say, hey, Adam, force Kyle Lowry to retire, okay? No one wants to watch him anymore. He's the most annoying guy in the NBA. I mean, the shit he pulls. The other night, he just ran into somebody, fell, and tried to get a foul. And he was acting like this wasn't a ridiculous request that he was asking from the official. He literally just runs into guys. He does this thing, too, all the time where he's dribbling the basketball and he dribbles into the defender that's, like, on the side of him. I mean, that crap is just so annoying. I cannot take it. So... What I learned Friday night watching that Heat game after like we were talking about, oh, 49 points from Jason Tatum. They shut him down two days later on a Friday night after he goes for 49 on Wednesday. That's what scares me about Miami. They reacted to what the Celtics did to them on Wednesday. They made changes, alterations to their game plan. And look at what they did to this team. I don't want any part of that in the postseason. So that's the one team I look at and say, do not play this team in the postseason, please. I don't think I could live through it. All right. A lot more to get into. We'll. Get into this whole situation with the Patriots offense in just a little bit here with Kyrie Thompson from WEI. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from WEI and the First in Foxborough podcast, it is Kyrie Thompson. Kyrie, what's up, man? Man, 
it's going it, – it's, it's, it's interesting, man, because no Patriots this Sunday, so that means I got a chance to watch my hometown Chicago Bears and uh, watch Justin Fields be awesome again um, at the same time. Also had to watch the Green Bay Packers pass the Bears in all-time franchise wins, which is not cool. But, hey, it helps the tank, okay? Go tank. And, yeah. I mean, basically everybody except Justin Fields was in on the tank today. Yeah, but that's what you want, right, to your point about Justin Fields, is you want the quarterback to play really well and the quarterback to look good and continue to get better and better and have a uh, have a really good draft pick. So you want to lose these games. So it's actually – a good loss for the Bears, despite the historical yes. element to it, Kyrie. But I was we were talking before we hopped on here, man. I, I remember going back to that draft. I wanted Justin Fields over Mac Jones. But you made a good point. Like the Patriots probably would have screwed up Justin Fields. Yes. I mean, you think about it. Right. And and I, I was somebody who I was on a live call at the time. I had only just started covering uh, Boston sports uh, when this was happening. And. You know, I was on there with a Chicago friend, and when the Bears moved up, they were like, it's got to be for a quarterback, right? And it's like, Justin Fields, yeah? It's like, they ain't moving up for no Mac Jones. What are you talking about? Like, it's got to be for Fields. <laughs> but, but I think, like, when, when you think about it, right, and I think that Mac Jones, the way that he's played, has, I think, generally made me more positively disposed towards him, um, watching him do what he did last year, and then watching how he's overcome some of the adversity this season. But yeah, Justin Fields is, is a, was a better prospect than Mac Jones by a million, right? Just more raw talent. I mean, as a passer, he was obviously very good. And then you look at the way that he wasn't even really a dominant runner in college. He's only just started doing that in the NFL in terms of consistently it being a part of his game. I mean, he's a passer at heart. That's what he likes to do. But when you look at that level of talent and, and then you think about what the Patriots have done in terms of their coaching, say the Patriots did what they did all like what, what they ended up doing this season. And they, and they still did that with Justin Fields. Like they had Josh McDaniels, Josh McDaniels leaves, and then they have Matt Patricia do this. Then you're ruining Justin Fields. And that is an even yep. greater crime against humanity. The, the thought that that could happen than what they're doing to Mac Jones, which is <laughs> sinful in and of itself. <laughs> you're exactly right about that. And, yeah, the Patricia experiment has not been a great experiment so far this year. But I mean, the Patriots, at least they drafted behind fields. It's not like the Jets who drafted Zach Wilson, number two overall. Like that's going to look really, really bad in a couple of years when yeah. Justin Fields is playing at a high level, continuing to get better. And Zach Wilson's not playing for the team anymore. All right. So let's get to the big headline from the other night, Mac Jones. So the quote is throw the ball fucking quick game sucks. Okay. He yes. said this, and basically after the game, he said the emotions got the best of him, et cetera. But Kyrie, I liked it. And I think for, it's one thing for me and you and for fans to be complaining about Matt Patricia, and he deserves to be complained about because he's been really bad at his job. But to see it from Mac Jones and Mac Jones to do it in such a public manner, where I get it, it's during the game, he's emotional, but that sort of highlights to everybody this is a mess. It's not just we're not overblowing this. We're not making this a bigger story than it is. It is a legitimate big story. And now we're seeing the players have issues with what's going on offensively. Yes. And I mean, you've seen it from a couple of people that like, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. It's showing up the offensive coordinator, blah, blah, blah. I mean, look, the, the reality is this stuff happens during games. OK, it this is an emotional game. This is people are always on edge. That's how you have to play. <laughs> for a lot of people, if you're if you're going to be good, 
Mac Jones is a hothead. It is what it is. And I mean, he, he definitely tried to kind of own it a little bit and, and say, look, I understand we had a good game plan and it was working and, you know, I have to do better on my end and, and all of that. But if we're going to be honest here, when they got down, it wasn't necessarily like that the game was ever completely out of reach, but there were cert- several points in the game where the Patriots, sent, they waved the white flag and they conceded. They were not actively trying to win this game at various points. And that pissed Mac off and it pissed off several of the players. Look, I was in the locker room when Kendrick Bourne was basically holding court for like 15 minutes. <laughs> and at that point, a lot of guys had filed out. And it, it was kind of unfortunate because Bourne's in a position where there's really nobody else to go migrate to at this point. So everybody's just talking, just circling around Bourne and asking him questions. And he's trying to be diplomatic and he's trying to say, hey, look, you know, like, I feel like we're close and look, we've got, we got plenty of plays. Like we have all the tools to be great and, and what have you, but the, the frustration, he couldn't stop it from seeping through. First of all, you know, the, the first comments were about, look, we got to give Matt time. And he's like, look, you know, I'm not trying to crap on the offensive line, but I mean, Mac's running around for his life out there. It's clear that he doesn't have time. And look, this was a case where it wasn't like, oh, Mac Jones has guys open all over the place and he bails. This isn't Zach Wilson where he's just bailing out of the pocket when he's got a pocket to run with. Mac Jones had pressure coming straight up into his face. Trent Brown was getting pants. You're playing Connor McDermott at right tackle. There was just so much wrong protection wise. And I give Mac a lot of credit for being able to escape a ton of sacks because honestly, he should have been sacked probably like seven times. And yeah. I think it only en- ended up being like a couple. Um, but I think that when, when I look at the way that was functioning and, and the way that they were going to the quick game, yeah, it was great early in the game where it's like, okay, three steps, hit the back foot and the ball's out. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. But the unwillingness to adapt the game plan and to then say, look, we need to eat up some chunks of yardage. Let's open things up. And then what actually frustrated me at the end, right? So they were clearly waving the white flag and then Mac Jones gets pissed off and says something about it. And then all of a sudden you get the play actions and now we're going to try to do chunk plays. And then, oh, all of a sudden Tyquan Thornton, he, who was playing at the beginning, oh, now like he's playing again after being out for all this time. I wonder what they want to do now. So even when they want to make adjustments, it's so predictable. Yeah. Like just, I, I, I saw it quoted uh, today, actually, that apparently Michael Lombardi said that the Patriots like, don't have an offense. They, they have plays. And <laughs> that feels to me like the most succinct way to sum this up. They don't have a system. They don't have any one thing that they can hang their hat on. They're just running a bunch of plays and saying, hey, just uh, run those plays, and if you execute them right, they'll work. They, like like the you know six plays, like Novocaine, give it time, it always works. Yeah, except that you ain't executing them at a high enough level to make them work. Yeah, no, that's the, that's the problem is <laughs> when they do try different stuff, it actually doesn't work whatsoever. But you made a great point, too, about just the fact that I could not believe in terms of the wave and the white flag, that punt at the 46-yard line. I mean, how do you punt at that point in the fourth quarter when you're at that point, what are you down? 17 to seven or 24 to seven, whatever the score was, you have to try to do something offensively. What do you, what, like, what's the point of that? Essentially, you're just saying, hey, that score doesn't look as bad as it could have. Like, was that the rationale behind that? Because you basically gave up on the game with still 12 minutes left in the fourth quarter. I have no idea why they didn't decide to go for that. So that really irritated me. 
So you mentioned born and the thing that stuck out to me about those comments were when he said we need to scheme up better. Oh <laughs> we my need God. to know <laughs> we need to know what we're doing. We need to know what they they want to do on third down. You know what I mean? We're kind of sporadic. So what he said That's- is true and I agree with him, but this is new territory. I mean like Brady, he would like get in arguments with Josh McDaniels and Bill O'Brien like on the sideline, but I mean we see that all the time across the NFL, but this now where you call out a coach in the scheme publicly, we don't see this. And I don't want to sound too hyperbolic here, but it kind of, I'm wondering now, like, does Bill realize that this decision to make Matt Patricia the play caller is ruining the program right now? It's hurting the locker room. You hear guys have to answer questions about it basically after every game. It just feels like, is Bill going to wake up and realize how bad this decision was? Is this what it's going to take the players coming out publicly and saying stuff? If Bill Belichick is the coach and, and you know, the smart, the football mind that everybody thinks that he is, that everybody says he is, then he better realize that what he's done this year has set his quarterback back in his development. And you're, and you're not just wasting a year of development because look, I think what you see is that a lot of these guys are, you know, going in on year three. And that's the big year when you want to see all the big improvement and such. But you you are you made him regress. This regression is on Bill Belichick. It is his fault because these are his decisions. And I think that if if he is as smart as as he likes to think he is and that everybody thinks that he is and says in Bill, we trust then yeah, he had better know that that this is unacceptable. And the interesting thing about that punt and to get back to that is he said, look, I mean, we, we tried to go for it before and keep on playing and push it. And then I lost Mac Jones for, you know, for three games. And basically it's like, it wasn't worth it. Oh, it's like, look, Mike. and, and I mean, look, I, I don't even, I just don't really know what to say about that because <laughs> this is a divisional game. I mean, it really, the, the one that got me wasn't even the punt because the punt, I was like, you know what? That's almost kind of predictable. It was the way they played for the field goal before the half when they decided to go with with two straight runs and they burned both timeouts running the football. That was that that was unconscionable. Why did they wait so long to take the timeout there? They let like because apparently they were like, we wanted to make sure that we had the first down or or whatever it was. They wanted to make sure that, that what the down actually was before they called the timeout. And again, why are you running the ball there? Like, and, and why are you doing a, a quarterback draw and a quarterback sneak? And he's like, you know, we're trying to get a first down and trying to score. It's like, you weren't trying to score a touchdown. And then of course the field goal gets smoked. And, and it's like, you, you get, you get what you deserve there. But again, to, to get back to the, the, like the overall point. So it's like, okay, great. I didn't want to lose Mac Jones for, for three weeks. Cause you realize that he's the only, he's the only real option you have. If you want to, if you want to compete to win a lot of these football games against better teams, like I'm sorry, I feel like yeah, Bailey Zappi. I can't help but wonder what he would have done. I don't. I like great. He did. A, he had. A, he had a couple of solid games against terrible defenses. I, I've seen this guy play for months. I don't need to see anymore to know that he's not. He's not your savior. Okay. <laughs> so Bill Belichick at least realizes that much. But definitely, when it comes down to the the decision to there was always going to be change with this offense. It was going to be inevitable. Josh McDaniels leaving, even if you kept the exact same playbook, 
Guys are going to call it differently. They're going to add new wrinkles. It, it is what it is, right? Because Josh McDaniels isn't here. It's as simple as that. But to simplify the offense and then allow a system in which you can't execute the simplified plays enough. And then, as you said, you don't have a coach that is capable of looking at a defense and, and looking at defensive tendencies on third down and saying, this is how we are going to attack this defense. They don't know how to attack defenses. They Again, they are running plays and praying to God that they work or just assuming <laughs> that if you, everybody just does their jobs the way they're supposed to, they're going, they're going to work independent of what the defense does. That's not how this works. And that is as clear as day. Like, that's how you know you don't have an offensive coach running your offense. Well, Kyrie, remember, Matt Patricia was a defensive coach, so he knows what the defense wants to do. That, that's why it was going to work for the Patriots. That was the sell point for Patricia. So just don't forget that. It's going to work eventually with Patricia. Oh, I but... have not forgotten. <laughs> I want to get to Kendrick Bourne because he made those comments. And I'm going back and I'm thinking about it like, I'm one of these guys that was hyping up Bourne before the season, breakout yeah. season coming, all that. Seventh in yak per reception last year, fifth in quarterback rating when targeted or rating when targeted, if you will. And then I was thinking, this is the guy making the statement the other day. And it's kind of almost rewarding for him, right? Because he's been benched at times by Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, whoever else. And it felt like, okay, this guy could have a really good season and build off what he did with Mac last year. And I do really wonder... If Josh was here, if Josh was still the coordinator and he wasn't the head coach with the Raiders, would Kendrick Bourne have had a bigger role similar to the one that he had last year? Yeah. And I think that it, it sounds to me like in the beginning of the season, whether it was like him being late to a meeting or, yeah, I mean, the, the, the training camp fight definitely kind of derailed things. But if we're going to be honest, he wasn't really that big of a factor in practice before that. So it was already the radars were already going off to a lot of people who were paying attention. He was having a couple of quiet practices. And apparently behind the scenes, like around the trade deadline, stories started cropping up that Kendrick Bourne was unhappy with the direction of the offense and that he didn't want to leave necessarily. Uh, he, he, he you know would be fine with it, but also kind of said, hey, maybe a change of scenery wouldn't be the worst thing that he would welcome it. And that all screams Matt Patricia. I mean, we basically heard. From, from a couple of people, um, you know, Tom Curran being among them, that he was in Matt Patricia's doghouse, not Bill Belichick's doghouse. Mm. And that, to me, just says, to, for, for Matt Patricia to, to be that petty, right? That you're just going to, okay, yeah, Kendrick Bourne's unhappy with the offense. Who knows what he's saying behind the scenes and, and you know, taking things as sign of disrespect. I got to be a hardo. I got to put Kendrick Bourne in his place. It's like you're hurt. You're hurting the team. I said it back then. I'll say it now. You're hurting the team, and you you're not getting a ton out of a bunch of these other receivers not named Jacoby Myers. Kendrick Bourne showed that he could do it for you. That he's one of your biggest play threats, and you can't find him. And rather, you don't want to find him because they're not putting him on the field enough to find him. Yeah, and that and that's part what, is just that's disgraceful. It's annoying. And the, and the other thing I point to I mentioned this like at the beginning of the season is we did hear that Matt Patricia got a ton of credit for the trade in terms of picking up Devontae Parker so I do wonder if that's part of it too where it's like you know that's just the guy that he picked up in the offseason Kendrick Bourne was already here and I get Patricia was part of the organization last year as well but I did think that's like an interesting wrinkle on the whole situation so 
There's so many like bad things you can look at with the offense. The one that sticks out to me is just first down. They're 27th in success rate, 38%. And basically success rate for anybody listening that's not familiar just means 40% of the yardage on first down, 60% of the yardage on second down, and then of course picking up to first down on third down. So they're 27th to 38%. You look at 2021, the Patriots on success rate on first down last season were fourth in the NFL. The only teams in front of them were Tampa, Green Bay, and Kansas City, like the best offenses in the NFL last year. Then you look at Football Outsiders metric, the DVOA. They're 29th on first down. They are, mm-hmm. in, ter- in terms of the running game, they're dead last in terms of running on first down. And they have one of the best running backs in the NFL. I'm looking at Ramondre. So 45 yards after contact on Thursday, 54 total yards. You go back to week 11, he had 29 yards after contact. He had 26 rushing yards. So he had more yards after contact than total rushing yards. So I get there's injuries of the offensive line is a mess, but how do they have no fucking idea what to do on first down? They have no idea. They can't move the ball at all. And then you look at the second down numbers become so bad because you're always in a predictable passing situation on second down. Yes. Yes. And I I think David Andrews not being back was definitely part of it for a while with the running game. But I think just generally that unit has lost its cohesion with running the football on top of that, then you have the fact that Ramondre's dog tired. I mean, you could tell by the end of that game, yeah. he needed a break. I mean, even some of the, the passes where he's kind of short-arming, trying to get it with one hand. I mean, he, he's, he's exhausted out there. And he just doesn't quite look the same. And, and it's hard to blame him. He's been out there almost 70% of the, the snaps this season. And he played all but one offensive snap this past game. And I, I just... I think that's got to be some of the predictability, which I have seen, by the way, um, that some of these, even when they're trying to run their draw plays or some of their zones, defenses just know what's coming, man. And so you'll see the linebackers just fire up there. They're not, they're, they are not fooled in the slightest. And Ramondre is just getting hit in the backfield and just having to create. It's like that, that's so, and that that's such a credit to what he's been able to do, period. The fact that he has, they know that he's basically the only thing this offense has going for it. And he's still out there just balling. And it is, you know, I I think if you, if you get a competent offense that takes some of the pressure off of him to do everything, you're going to start seeing Ramondre Stevenson pick some of these numbers back up. But, But you think about it, right? What, what have we been talking about these past couple of weeks, right? What's going on with the passing offense? They got to get Matt going. They don't know what they are in the passing game. And so, well, what do the Patriots do? What's their bread and butter? What's their, supposed to be their bread and butter? Being? Run the football. Establish the run. And that's what everybody is trying to take away from them right now. They are selling yeah. out to stop Ramondre Stevenson and make his life hell and make him have to create yards the, the way that he has been doing. And it's it's completely untenable to have a situation where and again you get Damian Harris out there who's got fresher legs and you can kind of see the difference when he's been able to play of late and to have your running back depth be this bad right where like you, you see a bunch of teams where yeah your third running back isn't necessarily a star but he's not Kevin Harris he's a rookie yeah there's not JJ <laughs> Taylor or Pierre Strong who they can't figure out what to do with or if they even want to play him and so it's just it's a mess I mean, from, from top to bottom, from, from a scheme perspective, 
from the usage perspective of Ramondre Stevenson and what this offense has been asking to do. It, it doesn't surprise me that the running game hasn't been good because everybody knows that's all they can do. Yeah. All right. So, hey, you're really good at the scheme stuff. So I wanted to get to the RPOs with you because it feels like, all right, they're going to try to use them a little <laughs> bit. But the yeah. thing that sticks out to me in terms of the RPO passing game when I'm watching it, it just seems like there's no creativity to it whatsoever. Is that sort of what you think? Against the New York Jets, when they were starting to, to run the RPOs a little bit better, I think I counted five of them. Um, and it was, or it was either five or six. Every last one of them was a zone read. So it's like, okay, you hand the ball off on the zone or what have you. And, mm -hmm. the, re and, and, and the passing concept was just a bubble screen. Every <laughs> single time. There is absolutely no creativity with this RPO game. And it's funny because Patricia was talking about it before the buy. Like, yeah, you know, this RPO stuff is more kind of college-based, college-feel kind of things. And it's like, you can't, uh, you know, just scheme these things up like overnight or like scheme it up in a week or two. And it's like, you don't know how to scheme it up at all. Over the bye week, why weren't you raiding the Miami Dolphins pantry? Why weren't you literally like taking every – just watch it. Everything that they are doing with Tua Tungle, and, and a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, well, they got Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, so of course they can run RPOs and, and do all that stuff, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter. The whole point is to put guys in conflict, okay? Make defenders have to make choices and make them wrong. You've got, you've got guys who are at least competent enough to catch a wide-open slant or catch a glance route, but you're not having them run that stuff. Like, I think I saw, like, one play against the Vikings where it was like, okay, Nelson Aguilar runs a slant or so, And it looked horrible. It looked absolutely pitiful. I think basically what they found is that, and I mean, this, this is, again, not helpful to the coaching staff, but they can't scheme up more complicated RPOs because they suck at it. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, like, if you go back to that quote that you laid out there from Patricia, that is such a bad quote because the Miami Dolphins play in the NFL. They're arguably right now by the numbers, some statistical categories, the best offense in the NFL, and they're more RPO heavy than basically any team in the NFL. So for him to have that type of quote, I mean, that's a bad look for Patricia when one team is running away with, or I should say, is passing the ball all over the field using RPOs. And Matt Patricia is saying that's a college thing. Well, no, it's in the NFL. It used to just be a college thing, but it's an NFL thing. It's all over the league. So that is just an irritating quote. But so I wanted to ask you about Uche because yes. pro football focus does the win rate stuff. So he was at 31.3% the other night. He had the two sacks. I mean, the bend on the strip sack was just absolutely ridiculous. And he's now up to 11th on the season in win rate. And to put that into perspective, that 31.3%, the leader in the NFL is at 26.9 on the season. That's Bryce Huff and Miles Garrett right behind him. He was at 31.3%. He's 11th in the NFL, as I mentioned. But man, I loved that pick when they made it because like I dug into some of the stuff in terms of how he compared to Chase Young and some of like the advanced metrics and whatnot. And it just didn't take right away. He dealt with a lot of injuries, but it does really feel like Kyrie that he's here. Like he's arrived as a really good pass rusher and it does look like this is going to be a hit for them. And they and they like him beyond just the yeah he, he can he fly off the edge. I mean they're they're talking about. I mean Matthew Judon mentioned it. Bill Belichick mentioned it that when he's on the field, they treat him as one one of the communicators of getting them into the defense because mm. they they value his knowledge and just like what like his 
his perspective that much. So it's not just like, oh yeah, just just go run fast or whatever. Like they they like him, and and that leads me to think that he's a guy that they're probably going to lean into keeping long term, especially if he, as as he continues to play like this, where he hasn't jumped out and done anything like, oh my god, he's so amazing, he's going to price himself out of of New England necessarily. They'll probably be able to keep him on on a reasonable deal if they want to. And one wonders if some of the moves they've been making with some of the salary cap things, uh, you know, pushing some Matthew Judon money into the future and, and maybe restructuring other guys that, you know, with all that cap space they have coming up next year, maybe this is something they try to get done. I, I think that would be a good idea. But look, just, just in terms of schematically, right, when you're giving all that attention to Matthew Judon, somebody on the other side has to win. And I mean, Dietrich Wise has been very good this year. But he's not necessarily the most electric passer. He's long, he's strong, he's got, he's got good moves, he's got good experience, and he helps in the run game and such. But Uche, when he's in the game, is just that's a different level of explosion and speed. And that, that Ben that you were talking about, I mean, first of all, the move he did, the ghost move, right, where, where he, he, tried, he, he throws a little like, oh, yeah, I'm going to hit you with like an inside or whatever in the counter step, and he dips underneath. I mean, that. Not everybody can just do that. And then you talk about the bend of flatten along the line of scrimmage and then chase down one of the most athletic quarterbacks in football and then get him from behind yeah. for the strip sack. And then he had a three-sack game against the Colts. I mean, he, he absolutely, I think this is the breakout. This is what everybody has been waiting to see out of Josh Uche. And it was a major question to me before the season. What are they going to do at edge? And I think, by and large, you got to look at what they've gotten out of Uche, out of Wise, and even a little bit out of Anthony Jennings on early downs as a run defender. And you got to say, you know what? That, that's been good. And it's made it harder for teams to just key in on Judon, which, I mean, that's what teams are going to do. I mean, he's you know, leading yeah. the league in sacks. And, I mean, obviously, like, they, they shut him down on Thursday, and you're hoping that that doesn't become a trend like it did last season. But if that's how it's going to be, and they're going to throw lots of bodies at Judon, as long as those other guys are making plays, then you don't worry about it quite as much. Yeah, I am starting to get a little bit worried about Judon because this is now two games in a row where he didn't really do anything, right? I mean, he had one pressure in that game the other night, and he didn't he really drew the, He drew the hold, which which took the touchdown off, which, I mean, oh, thank that's goodness true, yeah. Jack, so Jack Jones better be buying him a drink or something because Jack Jones was getting <laughs> spun around and he got yeah. beat like a drum on that touchdown by Diggs. But Judon got in and, and forced a hold. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you wanted to see more impact, especially with him going largely against Spencer Brown, who's not good. But again, it's like it's not just one-on-ones all game for him. Yeah, and Kyrie, one thing I talked about after the game the other night, and this is now becoming a trend with the Patriots where – For so many years, we used to say, oh, Bill is going to take away your number one option. And now if you look at it, you go back to week one, Tyreek Hill went off. You go back to the Baltimore game, Mark Andrews, two touchdowns. You go back to this game the other night, Stephon Diggs. He could have had more yards if he didn't drop one of those passes. Like he was beating them left and right. And even if you go back to the end of last year, Stephon Diggs eating them alive. So this is now a trend that's been going on since last season And I just wonder if that sort of narrative, that cliche, Bill's going to make you play left-handed, if it's done, if it's over, it doesn't exist anymore. Bill Belichick can do that if your quarterback sucks. Like, basically, that's what this year has has shown. If your quarterback sucks, he can dominate you, 
right? His schemes are just his players, what have you, they can kill you. When your quarterback is halfway decent and they have a receiver the likes of Stefan Diggs or Justin Jefferson, who did a number on them the week before, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we're finding that when you have Jonathan Jones as your your number one quarterback, who, which, by the way, I really like John Jones. He's done a, a very solid job. But you're trying to have him be your number one corner, locking down these good receivers. And this is where playing lots and lots of man defense and, oh, yeah, I'm going to stick to what I do and, and, and you know, lock people down in man coverage and throw extra pressure at you and, and, and all that. But when it's not getting home, and you, and you got John Jones on Stephon Diggs, well, I think your quarterback likes that. They like that matchup, and they'll take it every time. And this is where, look, I, I think yep. that last year and this year to an extent, in terms of the big picture, were sort of house money type years where they clearly don't have an elite team. They, they had a, a team with a bunch of good, solid players, and, and that's where they wanted to go with this, having, having good, solid players. But now you're seeing that when you're when there's a talent gap, when they're just straight up better than you, you can't do anything to stop that. And I'll say that when that was a problem in the second quarter, they were just getting absolutely manhandled trying to play man coverage. Miles Bryant couldn't cover Isaiah McKenzie. No one oh could cover God. Stephon Diggs. I mean, it, it was and they you know forgot how to cover Gabe Davis on that touchdown. Well, then they started to go into zone coverage and it frustrated Josh Allen for a second. He almost threw a pick right to Kyle Duggar. But then when Josh Allen started to calm down and started to take his checkdowns against those zones and, and just wouldn't beat himself in the second half, then they got desperate. It was exactly like last year. They, they got desperate, like, look, we can't get this guy out of his comfort zone. Let's go ahead and, and play man. And they started getting beat again. Then you throw in the fact that they were getting gashed on the ground. So there's a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so yeah, they, they can't do that right now against good teams. They can't make you play left-handed because they don't have the power to take away your right. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And it was just so aggravating the other night, right? Because the defense did try to keep you in the game and get you back in the game, not counting like the end of the half. Three straight stops, you get a punt, a three and out, you got the strip sack, and then right after halftime, you force them to punt again. And the problem was the offense didn't do anything when they got the ball back on any of those drives. So they couldn't pick up the defense. And by the end of the game, I mean, the defense is on the field the entire night. So Kyrie, before I let you go, if FanDuel put up odds for the Patriots play caller next season and the three guys were Patricia, Kaylee, Bill O'Brien, where would you put your money or would it be other? Kaylee is where I'd put the odds. Hmm. So Matt Patricia, I feel like at this point, we all know it doesn't work. I think Matt Patricia could be back, but we might see him in this, uh, senior football advisor sort of thing because i don't know that anybody's looking at what he's been doing this year and thinking oh yeah we should get this guy a coordinator job or something like <laughs> that not a definitely, market no, for him. <laughs> definitely no head coaching job if it's if he's gonna have a job anywhere it's it's gonna be in in new england i would think or is you know a low-level job someplace else I, I don't know if anybody would have him um bill o'brien has been the hot name and talking about coordinator stuff but here's the thing he's been gone from this team for for a decade at this point he hasn't been around. He, he now is an outsider. Like, yeah, he, he was the offensive coordinator once upon a time, but that era is so long ago that I think that they're probably like, well, he, he was a head coach um, elsewhere, you know, in a couple different locations, Penn State and Houston. And then 
he, you know, is at, at Alabama with, you know, old buddy Nick Saban. But I don't think that it's as simple now as like, oh, yeah, he knows our system. He knows our stuff. Like he's been gone for so long and he's got his own way of doing things. And I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, they brought him back just because like, oh, yeah, they, they know each other. But if they clashed more because it's more of he, he sees himself as I've got all this experience now. And I feel like when you look mm-hmm. at the past, when you look at bringing back McDaniels, bringing back Matt Patricia, these reclamation, bring Joe Judge, these reclamation projects have happened very quickly, right? Within like four or five years, if that. And so th- that was a little bit more of, look, my reputation's kind of shot right now. Like I-, I don't really have a lot of cash in the league. And it's like, let me go back to where I am most comfortable. I don't think Bill O'Brien even feels that way at this point. And you keep on hearing from people, look, if we're going to do this, a lot of times you're going to hire from within. And I feel like Nick Cayley at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like, okay, Nick, we weren't sure if you were ready to do this this year, but okay, Matt Patricia, you know, call plays and do the whole senior thing, what have you. But hey, Nick, here's here's another year for you to kind of learn and see how it's done. And then maybe we'll give you a chance next year, see if we can actually get something out of these tight ends that we paid. You know what I mean? Mm. And and that's what the guy keep thinking about. Um, but really, Nick Cayley couldn't possibly do worse than this. So I, I think that if, if it's going to be anybody, um, which, again, if, if they didn't want Nick Cayley on the staff, they didn't value him, then they would have let him go to the Raiders, right? Right, like Mick Lombardi. doesn't make sense. So I feel like there's yeah. got to be a purpose. There's got to be something where they might give him a chance next year. Because if, if you're going to insist on not hiring from the outside, then I, to me, he's your only viable option. Yeah, Unless you I always want to have Troy that... Brown do it, and you know you haven't let Troy Brown do it yet, so why would you? <laughs> yeah, well, I just I, I always have felt like they must have thought he was the next great Patriots assistant because of what you mentioned in terms of blocking him. And I'll say this, Kyrie, think about this: Sean McVay, Brian Dayball, Arthur Smith, all tight ends coaches. So I'm on Team Kaylee too. Anything but Patricia. Okay, we cannot yeah. deal well, with Patricia. Well don't, well, don't give me Joe Judge, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> God. Good point. Because that because that's the other thing, right? Is that he's still getting mentioned in the oh yeah, Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. Joe Judge hasn't done anything. Like he he he's, uh, you hear it from inside the building, and I mean I saw it in training camp. Like he's not really involved. He's not calling plays. Like he's not close to the process. I don't even really know what this dude does. If I'm gonna be completely honest with you, but don't let don't let that happen. Like oh yeah, well you know Matt being a defensive coach, you know I don't know. But hey, Joe Judge has played quarterbacks. He's played quarterback before. Why don't we let him call the plays? And, and, and you know, like he was our quarterback coach last year and he worked with the guys. Let him do that. That would just be another catastrophic mistake and it would probably turn out exactly like this. Yeah, I'll tell you what Joe Judge does. He sneaks it on third and 10 with the game on the line like he did with the Giants last year. And then he goes up to the podium after the game Wait. and says that he's got free agents calling him that want to come back that got more money elsewhere, but they rather play for him. I'm, I'm like, D- name one of those guys. Give me one name, Joe Judge, of somebody that was calling you saying they wanted to stay and play for you. I mean, come on, that guy's a joke. I mean, hey, when you think about it, right? Yeah, he snuck on third and 10, you know, in, in a situation where you need to actually stay in the game. Are we sure he didn't call the plays this last week? I mean, it might have been, <laughs> might have been, might have been him after all. That's a great theory. That's a great theory. That is Kyrie Thompson from WEI, first in Foxborough podcast. Make sure you check that out as well. Kyrie, thanks so much for the time, man. Great stuff as always. Yes, sir. Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? 
Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana, that's a no, but a banana, that's a yes. A nice tan, sorry, nope, but a box fan, happily yes. A day of sunshine, no. A box of fine wines, yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Kyrie Thompson. We cracked the code. Joe Judge called that play the other night. That's why the Patriots punted on fourth down. All right, we get time for a call, so let's hit that. 617-396-7172 is the number. Hey, Brian. It's uh, Andy from Watertown. Just uh, reflecting further on that dismal night of football on Thursday. I know our record is 6-6, six and six, but it really doesn't feel like we're headed in the right direction. Our defense has been great sometimes, and it's been bad whenever we have to play a really good team. And our offense just sucks. I mean, it's just almost unwatchable. I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with a losing record this year, given the way we're playing and the teams ahead. And is it conceivable that they bring back Patricia as OC next year? I'm going to pull my hair out if they do. Uh, it looks so bad. And if we do end up with a losing record, is it possibly the end of the line for uh, Bill Belichick? At what point will Robert Kraft say enough is enough and really want to make some changes? Uh, Love to know what you think. Thanks for the show. Take care. Wow, great stuff there. So I'll start with the Bill Belichick part of it. I don't see Robert Kraft moving on from Bill just because, think about it, it looks bad for Robert if he does that. He chose Bill over Tom. Whether he wants to admit that or not, remember, he called up Stephen A. Smith during his break on first take to say it was Tom's decision, which ultimately it wasn't Tom's decision. You guys made it Tom's decision by lowballing him in terms of the contract. So Bill ultimately chose, or I should say Robert ultimately chose to go with Bill over Tom. He fires him after three years. It just looks bad from Robert Kraft's perspective. Now, the Patricia part of the equation can't have it anymore. Done with it after this year. If Bill Belichick actually comes back with him as the play caller, that is just, you can't defend it. Look at how bad he was at this job. He was absolutely atrocious at this job. And you want to run it back? You want to do it again? No, there is no, and and look, I don't, like Kyrie and I were talking about, I don't have an issue if he's part of the organization, whatever. Put him in the Ernie Adams role that Ernie Adams had for all those years. But as the play caller, offensively, no. Cannot do that for another year. All right, so I did want to get to some Red Sox and then, Some Bruins real quickly. So let me start with a metric man breakdown of a potential Red Sox target here. John Morosi reported over the weekend the Red Sox and the Rangers are the most serious suitors for free agent outfielder Mitch Hanniger. Here's the thing that sticks out to you about him from a negative perspective. Just 63 games in 19 had a nasty injury actually fouled the ball off his man area. It was not good. He missed all of 2020 to have multiple surgeries and that was the shortened season of course. He played 157 games in 2021, but just 57 games last year due to an ankle injury. So that's the concern is he always seems to be dealing with something from a health perspective, right? That he's always dealing with some sort of 
injury, but he wouldn't be playing outfield for the Red Sox. Now, he would occasionally, but basically you'd be DHing him, which is what the Red Sox really need right now. They really need a DH. So last year, 11 bombs and 247 plate appearances. Like I said, he didn't play in a lot of games. The home run rate's at 4.5%. That's actually better than Devers last year, who was at 4.4%. So definitely a lot of power. League average in that statistic, by the way, is 2.8%. And with a full season, that 2021 year, he hit 39 home runs. So when he had the full year, the results were there. And that was tied for six in Major League Baseball that year. He will strike out 24.5% in 2021, which is 99th out of 132. I'm not worried about that from a power hitter. The thing I do like about him, he pulls the ball. 47.3% of the time, he pulled it in 2021. That was the 17th highest rate in Major League Baseball that year. And the reason I point that out is Fenway Park. You got... Of course, the Green Monster, you can play ping pong with Green Monsters. So I do think that sort of the spray chart, if you will, really works well at Fenway Park. A right-handed power hitter that can hit it off the monster. Those guys work at Fenway, right? And the splits are pretty close, too, in terms of against lefties and righties. Not much of a difference, so he can hit both. And he murders fastballs. Slugged 525, and his expected slugging percentage was 534 last year. Nine of his 11 home runs last year were against heaters. 2021, 23 bombs off fastballs, slugged 539, expected slug was 582. So that's something that you could certainly use as a power bat. You look at the Red Sox last year, they were 20th in home runs. The Boston Red Sox were 20th in home runs at 155. So this is a priority. You need to add power to your offense. You didn't have it last year. This guy makes a lot of sense. And this is what we know. This is what we like. The Red Sox are prioritizing a DH. They went after Abreu. They didn't get him. But now this is their biggest need. One of their biggest needs is to get a power bat into this lineup. So this is my thing. I If Heimblum signs this guy, I'm on board. I'll give him credit. I really would like Mitch Hanniger to be a part of this organization. He would really help and he'd fill a need that you desperately right now are searching to find who the next DH of this organization is going to be. So I will praise Heimblum if he gets this done. Here's the thing, though. You finish second with the Abreu situation. I don't want to hear the Red Sox were close. Oh, the Red Sox were the runner-up. You're the Boston fucking Red Sox. Go get Mitch Haniger. Don't get beat. The other team in there is the Rangers, who we don't know, spent a lot of money. They just signed DeGrom. They signed Seager. They signed Simeon last year. Get this done. Now it's out there. Everybody knows he's your target. Go get him. And look, I'm not telling you that Mitch Haniger is going to have the career that J.D. Martinez did in terms of his five-year run here was phenomenal. But I do know this. He's a guy that can certainly hit for power. And that's something the Red Sox need and not having to worry about that DH position going forward. So just get this situation done. All right, so now to the bad portion of the Red Sox conversation. Pete Abraham from the Globe had an update on Xander Bogarts. Two sources say Xander Bogarts has been meeting in person with interested teams this weekend and that the Red Sox have not made a competitive, competitive offer. Okay. Pete is obviously very dialed in. So no reason to wonder how valid this is. Pete's a very good reporter. So this is just really bad. My first question about this in terms of the report is, how is that possible? How have the Red Sox not made a competitive offer yet? I don't understand this. You haven't even made a competitive offer. Heim Bloom knows this isn't an extension, right? Xander isn't under contract with the Red Sox. He is a free agent and you haven't made a competitive offer. He can go to another team. Like, does Heim not understand that that's how free agency works? You have to put your cards on the table. You have to owe him more money than you would have before because he got to this point because you let him get to this point. So if this actually is true 
if you have not made a competitive offer to Xander Bogarts, this guy should not be running the organization. If this report is true, he should not be running the team. How could anybody want him running the team if he hasn't made an offer, a competitive offer to Xander Bogarts? This is why we're here now. This is why Bogarts is a free agent because of Bloom, because he couldn't get a deal done. And you're telling me, according to this report, that he hasn't made a competitive offer yet. That is a joke. And the other thing I'd point to, too, with Haim, he better be really careful about this. And I know the Cubs are interested in Bogarts. A bunch of teams are because you know what? He's an unbelievable player. Here's the other issue. The other component to this is Dombrowski's landing one of the big three, whether it's Turner, whether it's Correa, whether it's Bogarts. He is going to land one of those guys. You know how Dave Dombrowski operates. So he's going to get one of them. If Bogart signs somewhere else, what are the Red Sox going to get? Correa? Are they going to be able to pull off a deal to get Correa? So if you don't get Xander, you're in real jeopardy of missing out on Turner and Carlos Correa. So then you're just not going to have that great player at the shortstop position for the foreseeable future until Marcelo Mayer is ready. And that could be a while. We don't know exactly when he's going to be ready. Obviously, the kid's a stud. He's a fourth pick in the draft and all that, but that's going to take some time. So he better know what he's doing. And I just... This report to me is unbelievably baffling. Unbelievably baffling. By the way, since the uh, Red Sox signed Bogarts to the extension, 19, he signed it, I guess, a couple games into the season. 578 hits, six in baseball, 132 doubles, fourth, 376 on base percentage, seventh, 18 wins above replacement, 14th. Unbelievable. And the Red Sox haven't made him a competitive offer, apparently. I mean, that is, it's really difficult to, to read that from Pete Abraham today. Unbelievable. I cannot believe what Bloom's doing. If that's true, I, I cannot get over that. All right, I did want to mention the Bruins. I went to the game last night. They beat the champs, Colorado Avalanche, of course, and it was domination. Pasternak was ridiculous in this game. You look at them, they outshot them 40 to 25. And look, the Avs haven't been playing at the same level they did a year ago, but this is a really good team that just won the Stanley Cup. And the Bruins just looked like they were in a different class. And you look at the high danger chances, 17 to 7 in favor of the Bruins. 17 is just ridiculous. Then you look at some of the advanced stuff like the Corsi rating, which measures shots on goals, missed shots, and block shots, if you're not familiar with that stat. The Pasta Krejci Zaka line, 11 to 4. (laughs) Just absolute domination. You look at the third line, Hall, Coyle, and Frederick, who, of course, Frederick had two goals, 9 to 5 in terms of the Corsi rating from your third line. And then you look at the first line with Marchand, with Bergeron, and DeBrusque, seven high danger chances to two. So any way you slice it last night, it was complete and utter domination by the Bruins against a really, really good Colorado team. And I just feel like one of the things I've been thinking about lately with this team is I almost feel like losing that series to Carolina in the first round Help this organization in a couple of ways. I mean, there's some obvious ones where they had to look in the mirror and say, we have to play a different style of hockey. We need the defensemen to be more proactive in the rush. And they brought in what we're seeing now is the perfect coach to do that with Jim Montgomery in his system. And look, I'll admit that I thought when they fired Cassidy, well, are you pointing the finger at the wrong guy? I felt that way at times. But what we saw was Bruce Cassidy, the act clearly got old with these players. And you can clearly tell that the team is happier. It's a closer unit right now. And you got Krejci back after Cassidy was gone. When we talked the other day to Raycroft, we talked about the fact that Jake DeBrusque is on pace for the most points he's ever had in a season. And he's going to blow out his old mark. And he didn't get along with Bruce Cassidy. So this doesn't take away from what Bruce Cassidy did here. He had a really good tenure, went to the Cup in 19 and all that. Like he had a really good career. He's a good hockey coach. But sometimes that voice just gets 
old. So losing early in the playoffs made it more reasonable to say, hey, we got to move on from the coach. We have to play differently. So that loss sort of helped this team in terms of bringing the organization forward. The other thing I want to get to in terms of just what happened was by losing that series, the Bruins went from a solid playoff team last year to a wagon. And the big thing that jumps out to me now is you don't have that Death Star anymore. So the Lightning have played so much hockey over the past three seasons. Three straight cups, of course, won two of them. We all know that. They're still good, but as we've seen in these games that the Bruins have played them, like it'd be a very difficult series, but they're not the same anymore. They're not the same Lightning team that we've seen in the past. And when they were really rolling, when the Lightning won back-to-back Stanley Cups, they really felt like, to me, to do the NBA comparison, like the Durant-Curry Warriors, where nobody was going to beat that team those two years. So the fact that that team, you kind of outlive that, and now you're back to being the elite team of the NHL after that, it's a win when it comes to that, just because you don't have to worry about that Lightning team. Now, look, we talked with Razor the other day about there's a lot of good teams in the East. Toronto's a good team, although they like to choke in the postseason. The Lightning are going to be difficult. But you don't have that overwhelming team that you look at and you say, the Bruins cannot beat the Lightning a couple of years ago. They were not going to beat the Lightning in the postseason. We could all admit it, right? That's why I felt like 19 was such a blown opportunity because the Lightning lost early in that postseason, right before they got that run started. And the Bruins, of course, we all know the history. They end up losing to the St. Louis Blues. But it just feels like that loss at Carolina helped this organization in so many ways. Oh, last note on the Bees. Crowd last night was phenomenal. And look, I get it. Bruins crowd is usually great, but this is a Saturday night, so it's even dialed up a little bit. The Stanley Cup champs are in town, so it was awesome. So if you haven't been to a game yet this season, I suggest going because obviously the team is worth seeing because they're the best team in the NHL. You look at the game on Monday night, Bruce Cassidy's coming back with his Vegas Knights, Golden Knights. That's going to be a nutty atmosphere. So go then because then they go on a three-game roadie. They're going to actually play the Avs again coming up here in Colorado this time. So that's going to be a more difficult matchup for the Bruins than it was, of course, last night where Colorado didn't look like they were on the same level as the Bruins. But yeah, tomorrow night should be freaking crazy at the Garden. All right. By the way, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can, as always, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 